you don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. I look at every movie as a letter to myself telling me something that I need to know about how to live my life. And I'm, I'm only, on some level, making these movies to say, Judd, pay attention. Judd, live in the moment. She's actually my greatest, most clear-seen critic. Is she your most prevalent subject? Have you painted her more than any other person? Yes. I've painted her in, in disguised ways, and I've painted her in you know, ways where you can see it's her. Artists often use their childhood and family life for inspiration. Today I talk with a painter and a movie director. Both men have drawn on their own families to create deeply personal art in very different styles. Eric Fischel was described in the 1980s as a painter of the suburbs, but not the suburbs you might imagine. In A Woman Possessed, an unconscious female is sprawled out in a driveway, surrounded by dogs. In Sleepwalker, a young man stands naked in a kiddie pool, his hands between his legs. There's a lot of nudity in Fischel's work and not a lot of smiles. Judd Apatow is my first guest. His films include The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, and Funny People, which feature emotionally immature men forced to grow up after confronting sex, responsibility, and death. Okay, yeah, what? Kill me. What? Nobody knows we know each other. You're a stranger. You can get away with this. I got a gun in the other room. It's untraceable. I'll give you $50,000. Don't make me suffer. Please, kill me, Ira. I'm begging you. Can you at least give me like a night to think about it? Of all Apatow's movies, his most recent, This Is 40, released in December 2012, may be his most personal. It stars his real wife, Leslie Mann, and their own children, Maud and Iris, who play her kids in the movie. Here, Apatow's comedic point of view 
collides with marriage, work, and family. This sounds horrible, but do you ever wonder what it would be like if you and your wife were separated by something bigger, like death, like her death? I have given it a, a fair amount of thought. Not in any painful way, but just like a gentle floating off. It's got to be peaceful. I mean, this is the mother of your children. And then the new wife would be great. God, I can't wait to meet my second wife. I hope she likes me better than this one. Judd Apatow began studying the art of making people laugh as a kid when he would rush home from school to watch TV, sometimes from 3.30 until after midnight. On the weekend, he'd record Saturday Night Live on audio tape and transcribe the show later to figure out what made it so funny. In high school, he had a radio show in which he interviewed comedians to learn as much as he could about their craft. I like to talk about your uh, type of comedy that you do. Mm-hmm. Comedians such as Gary Shandling, John Candy, and Jerry Seinfeld. Not, some people just tell a joke, like an observation, and that's it. But you add a whole new dimension on it. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to say something, you know, and I think the next step is to do something with it. Now in his mid-40s, Apatow seems to have had his hand in nearly every successful comedy of the last seven years. He was a producer of Anchorman, Superbad, Bridesmaids, and is currently an executive producer of the hit HBO show Girls. But Judd Apatow still craves reassurance. I need constant approval of my writing as I'm doing it. So I will show people the first scene, the first ten pages. What people? Anybody. I will show anybody. <laughs> I literally will send it to friends. I, you know, Jake Kasdan, who directed and produced on Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared, is one of the first people I show things to. But I'll show it to the studio because I don't like that moment when you have a finished script and you go, I wonder if they'll like it. So if I send them thousands of pages over the course of two years, they're so confused right. that there's not a moment of truth. It's going to bury them. <laughs> exactly. And when it when it really gets down to it, Lena Dunham and I were working on Girls. That was happening parallel to me making This is 40. So we would literally spend two hours breaking girl stories and then two hours talking about This is 40. And then near the end, I'll get the courage up to send it to like, Eric Roth and James L. Brooks and Cameron Crowe. Brooks is a big influence to you. Yeah, he's probably the biggest influence, I think, his whole approach to stories is just imprinted in my mind from my childhood, watching Mary Tyler Moore and Taxi. That's how I feel like stories work. Normal people with everyday normal problems trying to get along, trying to make their jobs and their the love in their life work. And his work always ends with some beautiful grace note, mm-hmm. which is always hopeful yet realistic. And I remember them from when I was a kid, how you know there was a Taxi episode where Louis De Palma was dating a blind woman, and he was so in love. And then she was having an operation to get her sight back, and he he thought she's going to dump me. Yeah, which she can see. Which she can see. And then, of course, she loves him and thinks he's beautiful. And as he walks out of the room, he throws something in the garbage, and he says, "I guess I got to get a real ring." Right. And, right. and I, I used to love how he would pull that off. So he's very helpful. And in the middle of this is forty. I, I emailed James Brooks, and I said. Remind me what the movie is about again. I forgot. In the writing phase. Uh, no, while we in were shooting. shooting. And he sent me a long email saying, this is what your movie's about. So you kind of, I'll let you say this, but it sounds to me like you swim in kind of a pool or a stream 
with a lot of people who make films and you're, and you're open to their suggestions and you're open to their ideas. If you talk to a multitude of people for their ideas, which ones do you – I mean, in the end, you decide. In the end, you choose. I, I've always had faith in my ability to make that call. Right. So I don't mind a lot of feedback. It doesn't confuse me if everyone says something different. Right. I mean, I come from television and rooms of people arguing about story, and my formative years were spent at the Larry Sanders show where you were a great guest. And I, yeah. I one of the great early moments in my career was I wrote – a bunch of those scenes in, in the episode sure. you were in. And I, I just was, saw it on TV the other day I was home. My favorite line, which was when Shandling goes to the wings of the stage when I'm on the set, and I'm not quoting it properly, but Rip says, what's the matter? He says, I can't help it. I keep seeing him having sex with my wife. And he says, and she's on top. And Rip says, the lazy bastard. That's right. That's a, that is, I wrote that joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I wrote that joke because I was so proud of that joke. I love that. And I remember when you came in to the first day of shooting and, and to do the quick rehearsal and Gary was giving you shit from the second you walked yeah. in the door. He's like, Alec, do you need a lozenge? You need a lozenge? <laughs> and you said, all right, that's how it's going to be, Gary. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it's going to be. And uh, it's one of the great episodes. So, so I think that's... That was not your first job, though. My first job, I used to write jokes for comedians. I wrote jokes for Roseanne's nightclub act for and a long time. Why did you become one? Why did you, or did you do stand-up periodically? I did it for, for seven years. It's all I wanted to do. But I very quickly realized I was better at creating sketches or dramatic situations to get my point across. And as a straight monologist, I wasn't interesting the way my roommate Adam Sandler was or Jim Carrey. I, just as a fan, I knew, oh, I'm not these guys. You really felt that way. Oh, yeah. And, I, and were you in L.A. at the time? I was in L.A. I lived in North Hollywood with Sandler. And, you know, How long uh, did you live with Sandler? It was uh, under two years. Right. And, it, I mean, it was the most fun time ever. Every time we see each other, we're like, that was the best. You know, we were just so into doing stand-up. And back then, Sandler wasn't famous, so he was really silly all the time and very uh, obnoxious and trying to make strangers laugh. He, he really engaged the world for his own amusement. He had less to protect than he does now. Yeah, he, he just loved, you know, asking, pulling people over to ask for directions in the car and doing something crazy to them. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but he was the guy that would fart in the elevator and go, Judd, come on, Judd. we're in an elevator. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, that disappears when you get famous. Now, you <laughs> brought this up. There, you know, well, the, well, you brought this up, and I'm, I can't say I'm glad you did, but um, in your movie, Paul Rudd is in bed with your wife. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> He's in bed with his wife. Yes. And to torment her, he just rips off a series of well-placed... Like he's turning over cards in a game. He's just like, he rips a couple of uh, yes. parts there. But you, that's not how you live, right? I mean, <laughs> well, it's a, that's a complicated uh, scene. And what's funny about that scene is uh, you know, they're having a very serious conversation about their finances, which are not good. And they're watching security camera footage, waiting, trying to figure out who's stealing from them. And yeah. they see Megan Fox fooling around with someone at work. And then Leslie says, at least she's getting some. And his yeah. reaction after a few moments of feeling attacked is to just fart. Yeah. It's like a monkey. It's kind of like saying, you know, screw you. And Rudd did it as an improv. It wasn't it was in the statement. script. Yeah, it wasn't in the script. And Leslie knows, okay, if anything happens off page, I need to go with it. And she's furious. And you see it in her eyes. And she's really genuinely disgusted 
and you get kind of a real sense of what marriage is like. That's how this complex is marriage is. Yeah. <laughs> now, the other question I have apropos of the movie was, so I'm, I'm thinking Rudd, it's either the highest honor or he's the goat because you're, you know, you're lying in bed with your wife who's made a lot of great films and funny films and you say, uh, what's your nickname for your wife, may I ask? Did you just call her Les? Is it Les? Leslie? Well, the funny thing is, I always call her Leslie, and then she's like, Judd, my name's Leslie. Leslie. It's not Leslie. Leslie. <laughs> I literally yeah. say her name wrong. I'm from wrong. Syosset. It's Leslie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Leslie is, we're, we're not in Cambridge now. Exactly. So you're, you're there with her, and you say to her, I'm, I'm just envisioning this scene where you look at her and you say, baby, who's the guy that you, like, most want to have sex with? It was like, and just be honest with me. We've been together a while. We have two kids. You know, it's me. I'm making a film. And she says, God, Paul Rudd. And immediately you cross his name off the list. Exactly. And go, he's never doing my film. Or is it like you put him in? Or do you say to her, baby, who's the guy that you view as like a brother? Like if you had sex scenes with him, this wouldn't mean anything. You'd be like, like fooling around with your brother. Paul Rudd. That's and right. you go, hire him. Yeah, she's disgusted. Uh, and And that makes it okay to watch them fool around. I, I'm always disgusted when she fools around with anyone. I remember when we shot The Cable Guy, she kissed Matthew Broderick and then when they parted, I saw in the dailies, there was like a, a spit string that connected them for like yes. a foot. And like I a lady in the tramp moment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, yes, I'm glad that, unless they're lying about being disgusted by each other, because I may be the fool. They are lying to you. Oh, they man. Are lying to you. That's yeah. terrible. Because yeah. I, I know... Because I've heard that before. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've had... Well, you know, my ex-wife has got, you know, Russell Crowe's got his tongue into her spinal <laughs> fluid. And she's like, no, no, it was just nothing. It's nothing. Well, the day I had uh, back surgery for a herniated disc back in uh, the year 2000... Leslie couldn't be there because she's Leslie. Leslie, sorry. <laughs> no, go Le continue. Leslie couldn't be there because she was Mrs. Apatow. We'll call her. She was shooting a, a scene where she was making love with Jeff Goldblum. Ah, uh, and you just know he's all handsy in between you know takes. He's, just, he's the fly. You <laughs> know he's just pushing buttons on a woman that you don't even know we're there. Exactly. Now, when you start a film like this. Is there a fear when you begin? Do you think to yourself, oh, God, this is the one, um, all the wheels are going to fall off? Like, what's your disposition when you start shooting? You know, I want to succeed because I just want to be allowed to continue making movies. I also have a rebellious streak, which is I, I do have some sense of what makes a very commercial movie, and I'm working partially against that. Like, as the attention span of the audience gets shorter, I want to make longer movies to say there's something wrong with you that you can't sit for two Did hours. Did you deliberately and do minutes. that with this film? I deliberately do it with all of them because I I feel like you know this is the only time we're going to get with these people. Why do you need to rush to get home? Right. And I like movies like Jerry Maguire and Terms of Endearment and movies that were over two hours. It takes an extra twenty minutes to explore, you know, more dimensions of people. Someone said to me, it, "You're basically saying these people are worth your time." And sometimes I watch the movie because I have to watch it hundreds of times. I think, sure. wow, this is long. I'm right. really putting people through it. So on day one, I'm both trying to figure out like marketing-wise and concept-wise a way to make it sell while thinking I'm sneaking some John Cassavetes, Robert Altman aspect into a mainstream comedy. Right. When, when you do a film like this as Knocked Up begets this film – does this film, does right away, do you start thinking of other ideas, whether you do them or not? Just to... Oh, absolutely. I think that about 
most of the characters, I, especially coming from TV, I love that there was Rhoda after Mary Tyler Moore or Frasier after Cheers. So anytime a character works, I could watch it. You know, I could right. watch uh, either of the leads of Superbad go off on their own, Michael Sarah's character or, or Jonah Hill's, or the cops. Once it exists, I'm kind of more depressed that we're not doing more stories. And that's just my whole thing. I don't like to let go. So if someone said, they're going to make a movie about what happened to Albert Brooks's character from Broadcast News, I'd be the happiest man in the world. Had you known Brooks? Had you been uh, acquainted with him and had worked with him before and when you did this movie with him? I met him in the early 90s when uh, I was working at The Larry Sanders Show. I had dinner with him a couple of times with Gary. And I was just in, in awe to, to be around him because his Saturday Night Live movies were a really big influence on everything we did at the Ben Stiller show. And obviously, you know, Defending Your Life and Modern Romance and Real Life, you know, was the— te- in America. Yeah, yeah, it's the template for a certain type of—, of You can never say nest <laughs> yeah, exactly. and egg in the same sentence again. I was so excited to meet Albert that afterwards I went home and I wrote down every joke he said at dinner. Like, I still have, like, the, the journal, journal entry where he's making jokes about the Menendez case. <laughs> you don't kill your parents and buy a Rolex. You don't do that. <laughs> uh, so I, I wrote the part just for him, hoping it could be good enough. I never want to ask anyone that I look up to to be in my movie if I don't think it could be as good as their movies. You know, I don't want to be their crappy movie. Now, now when, with Brooks, when you work with people like that who are – veteran, if you will, or very experienced and have had tremendous success. What's that experience like for you as a director? Meaning, uh, do you do they come in and they just start riffing and, and, and are they rewriting and improvising and you just let it go? Or do you sit there and do you find a way, a politic way to say to them, I'd rather confine ourselves to this, what's on the page? Not specifically with him, but with any of them that come in. Well, I... How precious uh, are you about what you've written? Well, I'm never precious about anything other than my intention. So with Albert, obviously I'm terrified because I'm working with someone who's clearly more talented than me. So I'm trying to figure out how to manage my idea for the story and tap him for everything that he's worth. So I want him writing and thinking and pitching me. I mean, I I spent a year in a room trying to think of uh, an original character that he hadn't done before, but that would still use, you know, his great comic sensibilities. And then I brought him into a rehearsal and we did the scene as written. We did ideas that I had, and then I'd just let him play and improvise and pitch me things. And obviously, at the end of the day, if you were to, like, write down which of those lines are Albert's, you know, it becomes the the majority, which is the intention, to, to give him a space where he's comfortable enough to email me at night a better line, which he would do. The night before any scene, I, I, I'd get a little email from Albert. What if he said da-da-da? And it's always better than my joke. In a minute, more from Judd Apatow, who's always thinking ahead. I have these, like, age issues. So I, I my friends are all 45, 50. Okay, what is the movie we would make in our 50s? And I'll, five years ahead, begin to... Start fleshing start, that out. <laughs> start planning. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive. More unexpected conversations with artists, policymakers, and producers like Saturday Night Live's Lorne Michaels. Producing, for me anyway, is like an invisible art. If you're any good at it, you leave no fingerprints. And you only way you prove your worth is you leave a body of work and people go, oh, that accident happened there again. Oh, I see. So, you know, you try and get the best out of people. 
If you look around the room and you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. Hear more from Michaels and those he discovered like Chris Rock. I always say I haven't been, you know, I haven't been poor a day since I met Lauren Michaels. Right. I've never Me been neither. broke since yeah, I met Lauren Michaels. At here's the thing.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. When my guest Judd Apatow directed The 40-Year-Old Virgin, he collaborated with an actor who dances on the fault line between insecure juvenile and unapologetic adult. He was the perfect muse for Apatow's film about a middle-aged man's quest to finally have sex. I don't want to go out with you guys, okay? I don't need your help. Okay, all right, fine. You don't have to go out with us if you don't want. You know what? I respect women. I love women. I respect them so much that I completely stay away from them. Okay. I was uh, producing on Anchorman, and I hadn't uh, directed a film before, but I knew that Steve Carell was one of the funniest people I'd ever seen. He was crushing so hard every day on the set that all the actors were baffled at how, how funny he was. And he wasn't someone that was in line to be the lead of a movie. He was just one of the great, hilarious, supporting actor people. Yeah. And... I always like, I like those guys to be the lead. I always want, you know, I want to see. Uh, Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. Well, beyond that, I want to see, you know, George Went. I want to, I want to, I like seeing, I like, because that's who I feel like. I feel like the side guy and I always want to follow them home. Right. And so I said to Steve, do you have any ideas for movies? Because you definitely could carry a movie. And he said, there was a sketch at Second City we did once that we never quite finished, which was, 
about a poker game where they're all telling sex stories and it's clear that one guy has never had sex and everything he says makes no sense. And he's saying, yeah, you know, like when you touch a girl's breast, it feels like a bag of sand and you go down her pants and there's all that baby powder. And, <laughs> and, and, and he said, so, I, you know, I'd love to play a 40-year-old virgin. And just because I'm such a nerd and so insecure and ashamed of everything in life, I just immediately understood what he meant and that you could do something very sweet and and riotously funny so we wrote it together now the now so when you direct the film how is the technical challenge for you or how is the technical uh, aspects of it for you grown because it is filmmaking and are you are like do mr and mrs apatow sit in the screening room at night and watch citizen kane and <laughs> Look at the there rack. is a man. Look at the rack focus. Yeah, do, do um, you know? Do do you watch scenes from films and say that's what I want? There it is. Uh, Freeze know, that right there, <laughs> Leslie. That's not me at all because I came from being a stand-up comedian and it was all dialogue. It wasn't visuals, so I never tuned into that. And I have no brain for the technology, so I can't remember the lenses and what they do. And even now, even now, like what, I, do, you, what do you do? Uh, I hire people who are really good. Like you just surrender all that to other people. Well, I, it's not a total surrender because I, I I will show them what I like. Right. You know, I, I always I'm trying to model my work after movies like The Last Detail, the Hal Ashby movie, or Coming Home. I like movies that feel almost like a documentary. I want you to forget I exist, and I'm trying to make it as voyeuristic as I can make it. In, in some ways, it's like Larry Sanders. I, I like that look for comedy for what I do. Your kids are in your movie. You put your own children in the movie. That is true, yes. And what effect does that have? Do, like, do your kids now, do they, they close their bedroom door and they don't, they're like, don't come in here without a script? Well, talk to me. there is a little of, Daddy, why won't you let me work for anybody else? And right. uh, Because I didn't put them in the movie to start a career. I just wanted this idea to work, and I wanted to capture a real family and have people on screen that look like they love each other. Do they want to make movies? Well, Iris, my 10-year-old, she literally will say, I don't want to be an actress. Right. Uh, so she's right. kind of cool. I, yeah. I think she probably wants to write. And then Maude is doing a lot of things. She's uh, She interviewed One Direction for Teen Vogue. And, and her acting is so good here that I am concerned that we'll get you know the, the call out of the blue from James Cameron to ask her to uh, ride a magical dragon for seven yeah. months. And then I have to say, Maude, no, you yeah, actually— In Australia. Yeah, you have, to, you have to finish school, and then she'll hate me for the rest of her life. Yeah. I yeah. could have been in Avatar too, and you ruined it. Yeah. Instead, you want me—you want me to wait until I'm in this is fifty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's a—it's a miscalculation based on my own greediness to capture how great they are for my movie with no, you know, forethought of how it will affect their lives. But they did really enjoy making the movie, and they fought so much in the movie and in life that since the movie they've gotten along great like it's almost like by playing out the drama of the ridiculousness of their sibling rivalry right. seeing themselves on screen they had to think through like why are we fighting what is it about and on some unconscious level they've gone easier on each other since we shot it's so funny because that's the old actor's tenet that gets passed on to you that every role you play perhaps embedded in that role is an opportunity for you to say goodbye to some part of yourself you don't like. I, I think that's true. I, I look at every movie as a letter to myself telling me something that I need to know about how to live my life. That I'm, I'm only, on some level, making these movies to say, Judd, pay attention. Judd, live in the moment. Because I am a, you know, a detached writer who, 
who needs to be brought into the moment and a lot what did of Leslie think when she saw the movie when it was finally done what was her comment to you uh, in the beginning she worried if it it didn't end happy enough and now she she really loves it and I kind of like that it has that question mark at the end which is you know it's hard work it's going to be hard work but they yeah. love each other and it's definitely right. worth it I think that sometimes she you know worries that it could go slightly darker by like 4% than it needs to, mm-hmm. where I like that question mark of, you know, we're all struggling, but it's okay. That's what life is. And still people say I'm resolving it too much. So you can never walk that line. Some people want it so dark and some people are so pissed it's not all jokes. So, you know, I'm always in the middle. Writer-director Judd Apatow says he still wonders what's left to say. Don't worry, Judd. Turning 50 will give you more than enough material for a sequel. My next guest is an artist who, like Apatow, explores some of the more peculiar sides of what it means to be human, but unlike Apatow, his work isn't meant to make you laugh. Eric Fischel is known for powerful and provocative paintings, most notably Bad Boy. In it, A naked woman lies on a bed. A young boy is standing in front of her, his hands behind his back, and he seems to have taken something from her purse. Fischl grew up in the privileged country club culture of North Shore, Long Island. But his mother suffered from depression and alcoholism and committed suicide when Fischl was 22. After decades of living in New York City, he and his wife, painter April Gornick, now live full-time on eastern Long Island. In his recent autobiography, Bad Boy, My Life On and Off the Canvas, Fischl covers his youth, the art world, his own struggles with depression and substance abuse, and his thoughts about the creative process. He was in the first undergraduate class at Cal Arts, a place that was known for experimentation in all forms, orgies, drugs, but most importantly, conceptual art. It would be some time before Fischl's skill, talent, and voice found a home in realism. I started out being trained as an abstract painter. You know, if you you were going to be a painter, you should be an abstract painter. So I tried. What it turned out was that every abstract painting I made felt like it was absolutely the last painting I could make. Then at some point I started to work with figures and with narrative and language and stuff like that. And it flowed. That's when I realized I was now doing the work that I was supposed to do, that, I, that I, I was built for. And then it was a matter of getting better at it and, you know, perfecting it, honing it, et cetera. Was there ever a thought of you doing something else creatively? Well, music was out of the question because I have a tone-deaf ear, right. so I, I, there was no way I could do that. That's a problem. I was in a, uh, a play in eighth grade in which I, it was called It's Cold in Them Thar Hills. Yeah. And I played this hillbilly named Zeke who didn't speak through the entire play but was on stage the entire time until the very end when I had this like big speech where I proclaimed my love for this person who didn't know I was even present. Do you right? get the girl? And I get the girl. Oh. But it was like spending a lot of time kind of being present and absent at the same time was actually a profound experience for me. But it it didn't lead to me wanting to do the next play or to to do that. And 
I've actually become much more of a public person over the years. And it was a lot easier for me to, in private, have my thoughts and feelings and, and uh, you know, sort of express them before anyone ever saw them. And so I could actually control the form of expression before it entered the, the world. So painting gave you art and privacy. Yes, exactly. But, but, that, changed, but that changed. But my sensibility is very much... The, I think consistent with you know an an actor's sensibility and a, and a director's sensibility and and uh, in that sense of you know understanding what a dramatic moment actually is where where meaning is present. My work is based on um, or that as a source material photographs. I did a project once where I actually used actors. I was given a house, a Mies van der Rohe house in Krefeld, Germany, to um, do some kind of interaction with the house. I never worked with actors before. And so I went to friends who were in the business, uh, you know, writers, uh, playwrights, screenwriters, whatever, directors, to give me some ideas. Of, like, how do you talk to an actor? What gets them going, et cetera? Because I had no clue. The simplest advice came back from Mike Nichols, who said, I'll give them problems. They love problems. And I said, what the hell's a problem? They said, oh, you know, she wants to borrow 500 bucks from him, but she won't tell him why. Why just give him that? You'll see, right? (laughs) I was like, okay. I would give him a problem. And I was surprised at how fast I could tell that the problem I gave him wasn't any good. They couldn't get animated. And they were just like... It, it, it wasn't it, achieving the desired effect. No, they were, they were just dead. It was like nothing. Their body couldn't even move hardly. And at the same time, when I gave them something they could really bite their teeth into... For example? I did a... She'll uh, sleep with you, but she has to break up with her boyfriend first. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, the female actress had like zero interest in him. Uh, but she was very professional, and so we're going to do the bedroom stuff. And, and I set up uh, uh, some stuff in there, and it it really wasn't working. It was, you know, uh, there was something. Uh, they were dressed in evening clothes. It was late to come home. You know, he's drunk. She's hoping that, you know, uh, they could have some sex maybe. He's, you know, what can't kind of get it together. It was lame. So he gets up and he goes off to the bathroom or something like that. And so I say to her, look, take off your clothes. Get in the bed. You're a wild animal. Whatever you do, don't let him in the bed. Now, this bed that I had chosen was like a, a modernist bed that had this igloo of, a, of mosquito netting over it. So it made like a cocoon or something like that, a tent. All of a sudden, she like curls up into this incredible kind of creature, and then like pushes herself against the end of the wall, and 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 is like just sitting there waiting, right? And he comes back into the room, and now he sees her in the bed. She's naked. It's like, oh, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere, right? Yeah. He takes his uh, bathrobe off and walks over to the the netting. He starts to lift it up. And she comes flying across the bed, one leap, and smashes him in the face, right? And he's like, whoa. And then he goes, whoa. (laughs) This could be fun. (laughs) 
for And you me. got good images. I right? got great images off of that. Yeah, yeah. They did a whole dance around getting in and out of the bed. And when he finally got in, she slipped out and, you know, reversed the roles and stuff. And that was that. But do you find that th- th- this carries through insofar as, you know, a painter, and this is my view, this is not, I'm not saying this is a commonly held view, but this is my view, and that is that the, the work I do, A, it requires an audience. Mm-hmm. And also somebody giving you a role. Right, and, and someone, and so, exactly, yeah. and someone, uh, uh, unless you're self-producing. Yeah. But for you, my view of it is I'd sit there with, uh, and look at painters, and I think, God, how much I envy them, that you sit in a room and you're totally self-generating, and you do exactly what you want to do, and then you send it out into the world and say, if you like it, great. If you don't, I really don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, it's completely unself-conscious in that uh, way, unless you're doing a commission. You know what I mean? Yeah. And do you feel that way? I think that, that I don't give a shit is a protective uh, is it? <laughs> response. I think it's like, God, I hope they like this. You do. You do. Like, oh, sure. Yeah, but the... I don't. I don't believe any painter uh, sitting there pretending that they only do the work for themselves and stuff. They're 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 seeking some kind of resonance, some some oh, yes. response. Yeah. Have you have you ever done a painting and you were mistaken, meaning you did a painting, and I'm being very melodramatic here, but you did a painting and you were done and they said, "Good God, Fischl, you've done it. <laughs> there it is. There you have it." And the and and a painting did not succeed. In, in one term, and then other times you sat there and said the opposite. This is a piece of crap, and it was one of your most successful yeah. paintings. Has that happened? I, that, not in the extreme, right. but I, I've certainly done uh, paintings that I thought were uh, better than they were received. And I've certainly had the experience where I've seen paintings that I didn't think were so good when I did them and see them 10 years later and go, you know, that actually isn't that bad. <laughs> so... I don't know, but... Uh... No, it, with people uh, that you photograph, manipulate, paint, whatever verb you want to use for the work you do and the stages of the work you do, uh, how much of, would you say your view of people, because I think like most men, we have this in common, which is this kind of relationship of your mother. Hmm. And if you have a good relationship with your mother, let's say you want to replicate that. If you have a terrible relationship with your mother, you want to find someone who's the opposite of your mother. Right. Or you want to restage the drama with your mother. Right. As a therapist once said to me, we, we want to restage that in our lives, and you get all the good lines now. <laughs> so I think all art expression is in some way trying to correct a lot of stuff. And and, you, you know, trying so. to put some clarity to it, some order to it, make it make sense, you know. How would you think that you're, you, you're very candid about your mother, who is obviously very ill. You know, she's mm-hmm. a very sick woman, mm-hmm. uh, and that plays out in her behavior. Um, she wasn't a mean-spirited woman. No. She was, no. She was just completely yeah, uh, overwhelmed just by alcohol. Control. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you say that colored? Because count to three when you read the book and you're Bell Bottoms and Hate ashbury and you're into a very kind of summer of love, 66 I think is when you head out mm-hmm. to the West Coast and you're in the thick of it. How do you think, what did you carry out there with you in terms of your idea about women and what you wanted? Or Well, I had, you know, sort of uh, two kinds of um, relationships with women. One, one was uh, I was attracted to women that were absolutely bad for me. They opened up that void 
you know, just emptiness that in a way that was like... Replaying that feeling. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was full of passion and it was full of, you know, this, uh, you know, profound need and stuff like that. It was very emotional and very short-lived. Uh, and then the other kind of uh, woman was one where, you know, they, they were really stable. Reliable. And reliable and... and Available. Uh, yeah. I married them. Right, right, right. <laughs> You're married to April. I'm married to. And, I was and, married and once before. You were married once and, before. And uh, stable. And stable enough, yeah. But, but then, uh, yeah, I married uh, April, and you know, for the last thirty some odd years, yeah. Did your work change in sync with your attitude toward love and relationships? It did with time. You know, the early relationship with April, for example, we were both young artists really trying to find our voices, trying to f understand who we were. I was dealing with uh, the wounds of the past as opposed to the, you know, the present uh, with her. So it wasn't apparent then other than the, the stability of our relationship gave me the courage to look into these other How areas. How was she different? Well, you know, she's incredibly bright. She's somebody that can multitask in, a, in an emotional way. Uh, do you have children? No. Do you think that that was partly because of what your childhood? Yeah, really? I think both April and I had a lot very traumatic uh, things that uh, uh, passed that made that that seem dangerous. There, there was a point at which I uh, felt like I could handle having kids. Uh, but April wasn't there yet. Right. And the one thing I wasn't going to do was insist that uh, we do it my way because I, I knew what the, the... She was only going to indulge you so far. Yeah, right. and, and or, or it was going to break her down in a way that I, I couldn't bear. So, you know, it passed. Mm -hmm. Now, in the book, your father... Uh, he went that route that a lot of dads go, which is he just wants to give you the safe advice. Yeah. His parental duty was to say to you, you know, let's be reasonable now. Right. And he told you to go to, go to business. Did your father live to see you become a great success? He did, yeah. My my mother didn't. My father did. He He actually didn't understand what success was in art anyway. He'd kind of given up by then, right? So, On it, what? On understanding on, on you, me. yeah, right. exactly. So you had a very, very kind of icy relationship with her. It was it was volatile and uh, complicated. But you know, he he really didn't know anything about art, so he didn't really know anything about what success in art was. And and back then, you know, success and fortune were not connected to each other in the art world. You you could be highly successful you know, shown in museums around the world and, and still be doing a teaching job or driving a taxi or something to to do it. So he was perplexed that I would even be in a field in which there wasn't a monetary reward necessarily, right? But at some point, he started to see my name in print, and that was something that he understood as success. Mm -hmm. And then he really flipped from uh, from sort of disengagement to 
the proud parent who, you yeah, know, we'd, we'd go into a grocery store and at the checkout counter, you go, you know who this is? My son. This is the artist. <laughs> he'd take the clipping out of his wallet. Yeah, exactly. This is from the New York Times. <laughs> My, that's E-R-I-C-F-I-S-C-H-L. Just, you know, no E-L. No E. No E. <laughs> well, you know, he, he, uh, he became an artist at the end of his life as well. He he discovered collage, and it took him a while after he retired to uh, find. He tried other things, and then all of a sudden, he found himself like sitting in his office at home, cutting pictures out and gluing them together. And and by the time he died, I had realized that he and I could never talk to each other. We just kept missing, you know. But we understood each other visually. And so he would send me his collages, and I knew exactly what he was thinking about, where he was at, how he was feeling. And he showed me that he was had been using my paintings to understand what had happened in our lives with, the, with my mother and the whole family dynamic. So it was, it was deeply rewarding to me, ultimately. To, but it took me a while to understand that. Did that he ever was. talk to you about your paintings and his view of your paintings? Well, at first, I mean, he didn't. He talked to me about success. You know, he could see and be enthusiastic for this show and that show, et cetera, et cetera. But there was this... Uh, um, thing that happened that was, I, I think, um, you know, really blew my mind, which was that I, I had done a painting um, uh, called A Woman Possessed. And it was a painting of a, a woman outside their suburban home, drunk, passed out in the driveway, surrounded by these dogs that were like, you know, beasts from hell. They were, you know, some were sniffing her, some were growling at, at the son who had just come home from school. The school books are on the ground. His bicycle's flipped over. He'd hopped off his bike. So this boy is trying to pull her away from these dogs and uh, her demon dogs. I, I showed the painting in Toronto, and the, and the critic described it in the most beautiful terms. He, he understood it as, as a painting that revealed the profound pain of love, of loving someone, right? And he wrote extensively about it. And so, you know, Proud Son sends it to my father. And, and unbeknownst to me, my father sends the review off to my siblings, right? And my uh, younger sister, Lori, writes back a letter to him. She's furious. Why is he trying to make her remember this painful time, you know? And he, he shared these letters to me. I didn't know they were having until the, the whole communication came to me. But he shared to me her, her response and then his response to her in which he revealed that he had been actually using my paintings the whole time to understand emotionally what had been happening in our lives and stuff, and that he was just trying to heal something, you know, trying to bring her into it as well and to, to into a kind of healing process. And to acknowledge his awareness. Yeah. yeah, which which took me completely by surprise, and, and that, that he had been seeing the work as deeply as he had you know, revealed as in you this intended letter, it to be seen, which is what I intended which, which and hoped for. He might yeah. have been last on a list of people to have gotten yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
Coming up, Eric Fischel shares his thoughts about art, commerce, and love. I make a painting out of love, and I'm seeking love in return. I want that to come back in that way, right? So somebody gives you money, right? On one hand, you think, well, that's an expression of love. They want to possess your work. So, so they're, they're expressing love. But money doesn't feel like love because it's a neutral currency. Now, I have to change that money into something that tells me how much love I just got back. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Eric Fischel. For years, he and his wife worked out of their downtown Manhattan studio. He says the city of the 1980s was the perfect place to develop his craft. However, for Fischel, developing a tolerance for the business of art has proven more difficult. I do these um, works on paper, that uh, oil on paper. Uh, They're sketches. They're a a great pleasure for me to do. Some of them lead to painting. Some of them don't. But it's it's an activity that I do. And uh, there was a time when they would be sold, you know, for like $5,000 and then, you know, $10,000. And I, uh, at some point... On the secondary market, they were selling for $100,000. So you go back into the studio, and you're 
you know, I'm making my sketches and stuff like that. And I'm looking at it thinking, well, why not do a couple more, you know? <laughs> why not, uh, you know, it's like all of a sudden they're starting to turn into currency, you know, mm-hmm. and, which is a totally different sort of way of thinking about and it, how right? much And how hard is it for you to resist? Because I was joking with a friend of mine yeah. last night over dinner. Uh-huh. And I said, what it must be like in your world where you're completely self-determining, yeah. where you're completely self-generating. I get kind of amazed. I sit there and say, God, Eric Fisher's the kind of guy where if he and April are like laying there in bed on Sunday. I mean, I have a very kind of a silly improv comedy view of it. April Gornick and, and Eric Fischel are lying in bed on a Sunday reading the New York Times and she turns to you and goes, Eric, I'd so love to go hella skiing. And you're like, sure, baby. Let's go hella. And you go out and you paint a painting. Uh, the and hella that's the hella skiing painting. trip. <laughs> yeah. you know I mean, like, like you, can, you can just go do a painting. You're yeah. Eric Fischel and r- running out the door yeah. whether you like it. Like, how hard I is it for you to resist to, I that? I used to have this fantasy that... Um, when my muse left me, I would still be able to make product, right? That I that I, that I I wouldn't be making art anymore, but I'd be making things that look like art, and that that was okay, right? And so, there were times in my process where I got stuck. I, I, I the inspiration was gone, and I was sure that. It now, you know, my muse, my inspiration had, had left, right? A total blockage kind of thing. And what I found to my horror was that it didn't just leave my head. It left my hand and that I actually couldn't paint anymore. I, I couldn't draw. I couldn't make something look like something. And that was terrifying, yeah. right? That's that's like your worst nightmare. And... Uh, so I have that memory, which keeps it keeps me somewhat, you know, focused on on staying to, true to my um, ultimate goal. So you're there. So what's the longest period you went that you didn't paint? It's not. It's not so much that I didn't paint. I I kept trying, but like a bulldog when it comes. I just you know, keep trying to go through it. It's just it's dead, dead, dead. So my question for you is: Do you find that? And I've seen this with myself and other people, where when the muse goes away, when you lapse into a period of product versus art, mm-hmm. when the artist, and that's a very real condition, struggles, I found people where it affects them in many ways. It affects their appetite, mm-hmm. their sexual appetite, their physical health, their emotional health, their sleep. I mean, it really, really, really damages yeah. them and hurts them. Have you gone through periods of that where you were like mm-hmm. really, really thought you were losing it. Yeah. What'd you do to get out of it? I uh, ultimately painted the way out of it, but, uh, you know, relied a lot on April to, you know, keep me sort of above... So you bring me to where... So you bring me to where the the one of our last two questions is. Let's go to Halifax and you meet April. And where are you at your life when you meet April and what happened? I'm 20 seven years old or something like that. I'm teaching at this uh, art school that actually is a very sort of advanced thinking uh, uh, place that, like Cal Arts, where I went to school, uh, Nova Scotia College of Art and Design was also sort of based on the most radical art of the moment. Um, 
anti-painting, so they hired me as a young, untested teacher simply because they'd fired somebody mid-semester, needed someone right away. They could care less about painting, so they took a risk on this guy uh, based on what uh, my former teacher had recommended. I get this job. I'm in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I go up there with my wife at the time, spend three months teaching there. She lapsing into a deep depression because uh, she, she's rootless and, and uh, being ignored. And I'm following you, basically. Yeah, and following me. And I'm not sensitive enough to it, you know, what that sacrifice was. And you know, we moved back to uh, Chicago in the summer, and I get rehired, and she announces she doesn't want to go back, and our marriage is over. And that following uh, year, I meet April. I didn't plan on falling in love. I, I just planned on having sex. And uh, Shame and, on you, Eric. <laughs> I know. Shame on you. <laughs> Call me shallow. Shallow. You know? So shallow. <laughs> Anyway, one thing led to another. And and what it was was I was actually going through a, a, a very sort of complicated set of emotions for, uh, you know, I, I had never mourned the death of my mother. Uh, I had just broken up with, you know, split with my wife kind of thing. I was now uh, falling in, in love, not wanting to, with April. Uh, my work was going through a transition where I was giving up the artist I thought I was going to be for the artist I ultimately became. And that period of doubt threw me into a kind of uh, series of you know anxiety attacks, panic modes, where I really began to have some serious psychological issues. I was dissociating and, you know... And uh, ended up on uh, you know antipsychotic medicine and stuff like that to stabilize me. me meanwhile, I'm teaching. <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, you're up showing these young impressionable minds the world through your eyes. Exactly. Let me show you the world through my clonopin soaked eyes. <laughs> and the, that's funny. I was only a couple of years older than them to begin with. Sure, you're a young teacher. And I had I had never been taught technique, so I'm teaching. Were you, painting, doing, were you doing the teaching. orgy thing like your teacher were doing at CalArts? Or was that, or that day come and gone? That, that day had come yeah, and okay, gone. Okay, great. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. So go well, ahead. You know, right. To some extent. I, I was definitely going through several uh, women in the, in the student body, but I, not all at the same moment. But right. uh, um, I, It was a know, sacrifice. You yeah. Right. I mean, it's a, you know, it was a small, isolated community. The winters are harsh up yeah. there. It's Gilligan's You're, Island. Yeah. <laughs> And when the skipper runs into Ginger and Marianne, we can only talk about the do? weather for so many times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the title charts. So go ahead. So the skipper runs into Ginger and Marianne. Yeah, and ultimately ran, ran into April, and uh, she stuck with me through this time, which was you know really difficult, and uh, in a kind of way that you know I, I just couldn't imagine there being anybody else. She's actually my my greatest, uh, most clear seeing critic. Is she your most prevalent subject? Have you painted her more than any other person? Yes. You have? Yeah. I've painted her a lot. I've painted her in, in disguised ways, and I've painted her in ways where you can see it's her. Um, so now you are a very well-known man. Mm -hmm. 
you and your wife are a very uh, admired couple in, in a community that you live in. And I want to ask you, uh, you know, A, why do you live out here particularly? You could uh, escape, uh, like a lot of great artists find that want to have real anonymity and peace. You could go live in Italy or anywhere you want to go. Yeah, I think there there was a, a moment a while back where I kind of looked around and went, oh, my God, you know, this is this is where I grew up. I'm in a different relationship to it, but I, uh, but it's definitely, uh, you know, more of a suburban than an urban environment, and a, a and a suburban kind of rhythm to it. But uh, everybody needs a sense of community, needs a sense of place where where they belong. Right? Um, I grew up on Long Island. You grew up on Long Island. Uh, I used to come out here in the summertime. It's familiar territory, et cetera. It seems natural in a way to to want to be here. Uh, well, so is it safe to say, just to, to conclude this, if you will, uh, that uh, the eponymous bad boy of the title still has his doubts, still has his anxiety, still has his fears and issues and so forth? He just has learned to handle them differently. I think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. They they don't yeah. go away. I I thought that the older you got, the easier it got. No. It turns out the opposite. <laughs> we just learned how to manage it better. You just manage it. Yeah, yeah, that's no, true. Eric Fischel's work hangs in museums and galleries around the world, and on our website, here's the thing dot org. And if you happen to find yourself in New York City, you can see his glass mosaic entitled The Garden of Circus Delights beneath Madison Square Garden in Penn Station. Fischl's inspiration for the piece, Dante's Inferno. Here's the thing. You can hear more in-depth conversations in our archive, from artists to policymakers to performers, like Radiohead's frontman Tom York on performing. You know, I often ask myself, why the hell would you put yourself through this because it's very stressful it's a lot of pressure and for me mentally i have to i build myself up to it in my head gradually and it sounds really precious but it messes with my head listen to more at here's the thing.org this is alec baldwin and you're listening to here's the thing Produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo, with Chris Bannon, Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, Monica Hopkins, Trey Kay, Sharon Mashihi, and Lou Okowski. Thanks to Larry Josephson and the Radio Foundation. dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.